Good morning. I want to say, first of all, that Jenna is doing the slides this morning, and she is a hero. This is her first time doing it. When I did it the first time, I totally messed up, and Tom came running back and helped me out. She's a double hero because when I got here and gave her my notes, she started going through the slides and realized that my slides did not line up with the notes that I gave her. So if she, uh, or if the, if verses come up that I am not reading, if it's not coordinated, it is not her fault. It is my fault. <laughs> and I'm going to own that. All right. Um, Good morning to everyone, to, to those who are online, and um, I've just been encouraged this morning through the, the praise and worship, and then through what Sharon has shared, and what's been on my mind with uh, the Samaritan woman, who is, who we don't even know her name, just with this common thread that Jesus cares about those who don't have a name, so to speak those who are unknown. So um, here we go. Jesus never runs from our messes. In fact, he walks right into them. He doesn't necessarily embrace the crowd, but he most certainly seeks out the individual. And in John chapter 4, Jesus went out of his way to meet such an individual, the Samaritan woman. So we're just going to do lots of reading this morning and kind of let uh, God's word speak for itself. We're going to start with the context, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Geographically speaking, Jesus did not need to travel through Samaria to get to Galilee. And in fact, the Jews usually didn't do that. They usually didn't travel through Samaria. But he had to pass through Samaria in the sense that he was determined to meet this woman. A little bit about the context. The history of the Samaritans can actually, I didn't know this, but can actually be traced back all the way to, the, to towards the beginning of the New Testament to the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel when the Assyrians invaded Israelite territory. The Israelites that were not taken into exile, they actually intermarried with pagan nations. And that resulted in a mixing of Jewish belief with uh, idol worship. And we read of this syncretism in 2 Kings uh, 17, which tells us one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. So there was a mixing of belief. 
Then later, Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem after the exile, and the Samaritans actually worked against him and against the rebuilding and reviving of Jerusalem. Eventually, the Samaritans rejected this polytheistic religion, but they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, and they rejected the writing, the rest of the writing of the prophets as well as Jewish traditions. They also believed that it was Mount Gerasim that was the true place of worship, not Jerusalem. And this I also found interesting, that history tells us that the land of Samaria, which was in between, kind of in between Galilee and Jerusalem, the land of Samaria actually became a refuge for the outlaws of Judea. So this distrust and disdain was clearly a mutual feeling between these two groups. Hundreds of years of history. And then, comes, and then Jesus comes into the picture, and this attitude just continues, and is actually, he become, Jesus becomes at one point the, uh, the brunt of this attitude. He was in conversation with uh, Jewish religious leaders, And they actually accused him of being a Samaritan, saying to him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Very disrespectful. On another occasion, here the the tide kind of turned, on another occasion when Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem, and they were wanting to rest in a Samaritan village, they were actually refused service. And that was um, a common thing, especially if the Samaritans realized that you were on your way to Jerusalem to observe religious festivals. And that's why Jesus, that's why Jews often crossed the Jordan and went around Samaria. I think Maybe this is a side note here, but I think Jesus gets our current volatile culture. He lived it himself 2,000 years ago. And yet, amidst the tension and the animosity of the culture he was living in, he searched out the one individual. And in our account this morning, that individual, the Samaritan woman, was heart-thirsty and soul weary. We don't know her by name. We only know her as the Samaritan woman. We're going to read about her in John 4, uh, verses 7 to 26. A woman came from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And that was actually the first time Jesus had said to anyone that he was the Messiah. There is so much we could focus on here, but we'll just highlight a few items. It's interesting to me that Jesus, in conversation with this woman, kept making her curious. First, was the fact that he was, that he was even talking to her. That was a curious thing because she was a Samaritan, he was a Jew, and then he chose to enter into conversation with her, and she was a woman, and religious teachers in that day did gen generally did not converse with a woman in public. The third thing that was curious was that Jesus knew her past and how she had been living and how she was living. Jesus walked into her life and offered her this unseen, unknown woman, perhaps rejected by her uh, culture and society, he offered her living water. This was an expression used for springs, fountains, running streams, and it was the opposite. It was used in contrast to dead or stagnant water. Jesus' words here painted a vivid picture, a picture of contrasts using the metaphor of water, water that is dead versus water that is alive. The woman, it seems, was trying to find on the horizontal plane that which can only be found in the vertical, our relationship with Jesus. Her life was messy and her soul and spirit were dry. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, God tells us that he has put eternity into every person's heart. This woman was wrestling with that eternity, that part of us that is restless until we find our home in our Creator and our Savior. All of humankind is yearning, searching for more, because we were made to live forever, for eternity. We were created for life, not death. Jesus acknowledged this woman. He didn't just acknowledge her. He entered into deep conversation with her. And we only do that with people when we value them. 
First, he entered into conversation with her about her past. Now he enters into conversation with her about a theological issue, if we want to call it that, because she surfaced a key point of tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, the proper place of worship, Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans versus Jerusalem for the Jews. The Samaritans had at one point actually built their own temple many years before on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews, in turn, several years later, actually destroyed it. In their conversation, Jesus keeps nudging this woman towards truth. First, he used the woman's own testimony of her life to point to something greater and deeper. And now, with this theological argument, he once again points to something that's greater and deeper. Worship, Jesus said, would no longer be confined to a place. The place of worship and the things and objects used in worship had been but shadows of the one who was now in her presence, conversing with her and offering her living water. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, we're told that the place of worship, the things of worship, that it was just a shadow of the good things to come. Here Jesus was conversing with a woman, and he was the fulfillment of that shadow. He was standing right there in front of her. The fountain of living water was offering her life. Jeremiah 17 13 tells us that it's the Lord who is the fountain of living water. And he was right there conversing with her. To reject him, the living water, brings death. Jesus ever so gently was showing this woman that she was living a life of death, a life that did not satisfy And then he said to the woman that the true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This kind of worship, Jesus was telling this woman, brings freedom. Freedom from outward performance. You can just be who you are in the mess that you're in. Worship no longer would take place through shadows. The fulfillment of those Old Testament shadows was standing here in front of this woman, conversing with her, giving her value. Truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, had chosen to invade this woman's context through an ordinary and yet an extraordinary encounter at a well at midday. I'm going to continue reading, although these verses are not on the slides. But we're going to see in the next couple of verses that I read that Jesus' actions surprised the disciples. First of all, because he was talking with a Samaritan woman. Or first of all, because he was talking to a Samaritan. And secondly, because she was a woman. This individual was a woman. But we're going to see that because Jesus broke cultural and religious rules, incredible results took place. Here's what happened. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, 
What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' priority was people. He went on in the next verse, verse 35, to say to his disciples, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus had very purposefully, very intentionally, led his disciples into a most unlikely field that was truly ripe for harvest. And you know what? This Samaritan woman, she went back into town, and she had an immediate purpose for her life, and that's what Jesus does. She simply told people in town, look, here's what I experienced. And then she held up a worthy idea and said, could this be the Christ? And in my paraphrased way, I think she said, here's what happened. You decide for yourself. As we read on in verses 39, starting with verse 39, just a couple of verses, we see the results. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It started with one individual, unknown, and it started with one conversation, an unlikely individual and an unlikely crowd. But it's the Holy Spirit that was at work, and that to me is the exciting part. It was not human might or power. A really good reminder to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's nudges and his gentle whispers, to be willing to walk by faith, to say just that one thing, to hold up just that one worthy idea, and to let the Holy Spirit work through us and around us. Here's what uh, God said to Zerubbabel when Zerubbabel was facing what some people thought was insignificant, but what also seemed to him to be quite an insurmountable task, the rebuilding of the temple. He said to, God said to Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit. And then, just a couple of verses down, the Lord reminded Israel, and he reminded us that small steps matter. Verse 10 reads, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Another translation words it as a question. Who has despised the day of small things? When God is in the midst of a moment, when we are in his presence keeping company with him, the small step, the seemingly insignificant step, accomplishes much 
because it's his spirit at work. In John chapter 4, Jesus filled a thirsty heart. He filled a weary, worn-out soul with life and purpose. I'm going to end with uh, verses from Colossians 4. It won't be on the screen, and I'm just going to read it as a prayer. Because Paul, in these verses, uh, the Apostle Paul is not only asking for prayer, but he's also giving, he's admonishing the Colossian believers about how they are into, how they are into, how they are to interact with their culture. So I'm just going to read it, but I'm going to pray it as I read it. So join me. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And here comes the prayer. God, open up to us as individuals and as Elam Chapel, a body, a door for the word with outsiders. And may we proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly as we ought to. May we conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity, perhaps just taking one small step. May our speech always be with grace, with one perhaps insignificant word, as though seasoned with salt, so that we will know how we should respond to each person, each individual. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.